Welcome to the Distance Hiker Podcast with me, your host, Matthew. I interview long-distance hikers just like you and me with the aim of inspiring your next long-distance walk, wherever that may be, or however you choose to do it. I hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to episode 3 of the Distance Hike podcast. Now, I did have a whole load of stuff written for this introduction um, and the wind has been knocked out of me a little bit. It is 11.23 at night and I've just spent uh, about an hour between myself and my other half trying to get our two-year-old down who we think has just discovered that he's afraid of the dark. So, hopefully this isn't a new thing, but um, I do tend to record these episodes and also edit them in the evenings uh, when it's quiet and the kids are in bed. And usually it works out well, but tonight it hasn't done. Uh, but there you go, there's a little insight into my life. Two young kids um, has its own set of challenges. So, um, I'm talking fairly quietly right now and hoping I can actually increase the sound of this um, so I can actually get it recorded. So, anyway... Moving on, I have got an amazing guest on the show today. Today's guest is Katie Ellis. Now, Katie introduced herself on the UK Long Distance Hiking Group a couple of months ago when she was preparing for her 300-mile walk along the Essex and Norfolk coastline. She was and has walked the coastline with a plan of not only walking 300 miles, but taking, sorry, talking, reading my notes, uh, to 300 children about ecology and natural history and in their locality. I felt that this was too good of an opportunity to miss and I just had to get her on the podcast. My curiosity with Katie stemmed from wanting to understand how she planned the walk. Now, for most of us, it's enough having to walk 300 miles and planning where to sleep, what food to take, what to pack, how to get there and back and everything else that comes with it. But pair that up with stopping at schools to engage and energise kids about the environment and the local area. Well, you have a pretty remarkable undertaking, in my opinion. However, from speaking with Katie, who I must add is an ecology student, it made complete sense how she achieved this. She was a delight to speak to and had such a positive outlook and clearly had worked incredibly hard to make her walk a real success. So I thoroughly enjoy this episode. I hope you do too. And without further ado, I introduce you to episode three of the Distance Hiker podcast with Katie Ellis. Enjoy. Thanks for having us, uh, Yeah, really appreciate you coming on. So um, you've Have just, uh, yeah, really, really nice to have you. So um, currently you're studying a uh, Bachelor of Sciences in Conservation Biology and Ecology? Yes, 
yeah, yeah. And um, which university that is that at as well i'm at exeter university but the campus is actually down in cornwall ah right okay so really good place to actually be doing this type of degree anyway Oh, it's absolutely amazing. I mean, we've got the sort of the whole of the Southwest to go and explore in our free time, which is awesome. Amazing. That's a really good place to be doing. And how many years are you into the degree now? I've I've just finished my first year um, and I'm doing a three three year degree, potentially with a master's, but I'm not planning that far ahead. I'm just going to see where oh, it okay. takes me. Of course. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, so you've just walked a 300 mile trek. Um, starting in Burnham on Crouch and then finishing in Hunstanton at the end of the Norfolk Coast Path. Is that right? I did. Yeah, I think yeah. the total mileage might have been closer to three hundred fifty, but um, three three hundred is a kind of a nice round round number amazing. to put to put to write down. So we we'll leave it at that. <laughs> oh, that's amazing! And uh, three hundred children spoken to as well at primary schools and scout groups with that. Um, yeah. So, do you want to go through a bit about that walk and kind of how it came about? Um, and yeah, just just fill us in on how, how it went and what was it for and all, give us all the de- details. Yeah, so um, actually it was in uh, September. I was in lockdown in self-isolation. I thought, God, this is, uh, you know, I never want to be indoors this long again. So I'm going to do a really long walk. And actually I'd walked part of the Southwest Coast Path with a friend um that that previous summer I thought yeah I I really want to do a a long walk um but I didn't really have any idea where I wanted to do to go or why I wanted to do it and then I found this uh project called Walking the Coast um with Mm. the charity Plover Rovers and their aim is to basically um engage coastal communities in ocean science because there's not enough sort of outreach between the scientists who are doing the science research and the people living on the coast and there was okay. one spot left and I was actually super, super lucky. And I emailed them straight away when I heard about this and went, oh, yeah, amazing. You know, how can I join? Can I be part of this? Yeah. And they said, yeah. Uh, so I'm, I was part of a team of five. I was, I was sort of the guinea pig. I was the first one to kick okay. off and do my stretch of the coast. And so, yeah, there's five of us all together. We're covering the entire English coast. So you're not you weren't all doing it at the same time. You, you're sort of doing it in different steps. Yeah, no, 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 absolutely. Um, and I decided, oh, you know what? Um, May in East Anglia in the driest region of the country that'll be beautiful time to walk Um, (laughs) as I'm sure everyone probably remembers we've had like the wettest wettest May on record so it didn't quite work like that but it was still awesome yeah amazing so um the the other people doing it um they're they're, they're, are they doing sort of a similar distance to you as well or are they doing um obviously you're all kind of dividing and conquering the coast of England isn't it you're not doing the the Welsh or Scottish coast the English coast are they doing a kind of similar distance to you or kind of are they doing something that, that works for them and their abilities? Um, uh, yeah, so I think it varies. And obviously there was, you know, everyone will know about the plans with um, hmm. to make the whole of the English coast walkable. That's not entirely yeah. finished yet. So it not also depends now. on like which parts. But um, yeah, I mean, my friend Will's currently walking the northwest section at the moment and he's doing 350 miles. Um, this chap George doing the southwest doing 700 in total but I think he's splitting it up okay. understandably yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then yeah the the other two girls um, Catherine and Tess are just uh, yeah I think it's depending on what bits are walkable and what time period they right. have okay brilliant and um, are all of you into doing ecology or some sort of conservation study or is it just uh, is that kind of the premise of how you how you yeah. get into this 
Yeah, so I think I'm the only ecologist, but um, the other the other four are either doing marine biology or zoology. But yeah, it's and I yeah, so we're all students doing sort of environmental sciences. Um, okay. And I'm I'm the youngest. Most of them are sort of either master students or third years. Oh, okay, yeah. okay. And where's the where's the interest in ecology come from? Is it something you've always had an interest in and naturally progressed into doing a degree? Um, what kind of how how has that come about? So, yeah, I know I've definitely always been interested in nature and always been very outdoorsy, kind of rolling around in mud from an early age. Um, and then when I when I finished school, I had a real sort of de- in a sort of in a debate, I guess, whether to do medicine because my grandma was a nurse. So I had that sort mm. of like family calling or to actually follow what I was interested in um, and study sort of the biology side of things. Um, and it took a lot of toying in over like a year. I took a year out of school and went and traveled and worked. Um, and oh, that amazing. was when I really, you know, realized, yeah, yeah, no, I do want to work outside and this is what I want to do. Ah, wow. And were there any experiences in that year that kind of uh, specifically made you um, kind of feel like this is what you really want to do? Any kind of uh, specific travels, you did, places you went, things you did? Oh, definitely. You? Definitely. So um, I actually went to Zambia and Zimbabwe. And Amazing. yeah, so I, I traveled around uh, Zambia and Zimbabwe for six weeks, um, mostly, mostly on my own. Uh, much yeah. of my family's, well, they didn't really know at the time. But um, when I came back with stories later, they were sort of like, oh, my God, wow, what? you know, I'm glad we didn't know that. We've been worried. <laughs> yeah. But the latter half of that, I started doing um, what's called a Fagaza field guide course. It's basically you train okay. to to be a, a, a safari guide basically um sadly yep. i couldn't i couldn't finish that because of covid so i had to come, come back home yeah but yeah that really sort of instilled the passion oh, amazing so there was this uh, was that all kind of uh that was throughout 2020 obviously with covid um so was this a year you're actually studying then uh with the university or was this part of the kind of year out uh was this another year out you had or was this intertwined with your course um, this walk? this walk uh, yes uh, no, completely, completely unrelated to my course. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, so we're we're like the five of us doing it from all over the country. Um, I just decided to do it in the summer. I finished my exams early and just got walking. Oh, I see. Okay, brilliant. Oh, okay, because I wondered if it might have coincided because I've, I've been to university and I kind of have a rough memory of where and where the term finishes. So trying yeah. to work out if it, kind of, if it was kind of an extension or some something a project you're doing as part of the course. It's just so this was literally just out of interest. You wanting to be involved in the project with the Plover Rovers? Um, yeah, you, you just went yeah, for exactly. It. Amazing, amazing. Exactly. So, what kind of preparation did you have to do? uh to get this kind of did you do any training beforehand because uh, <laughs> um... the logistics are are tricky with this you, you obviously you're walking 300 miles on coastline that obviously you're not going to know all of it um even though if I understand you grew up around Norfolk correct. area is that right yeah uh, correct. I was so I'm from Cambridgeshire but I went to Norfolk and Suffolk a lot as a kid okay oh, I see gotcha so, so you know that area well but the rest of it, obviously, I'm assuming you, you didn't know it. So it was all sort of unknown. Oh, Essex was completely, yeah, a completely uncharted territory for me. But yeah. Okay. So, and, and then obviously you've got the the added logistical uh, element of wanting to do the, the talks to schools and scout groups. So how how do you plan that? Because for most of us, planning a long distance walk, just doing the walking is hard and kind of, you know, thinking about the kits and where you're staying each night, et cetera. But actually then throwing in school stops and in addition to trying to kind of meet a certain daily mileage to actually do the walk is quite hard. How do you start with that planning? Yeah, so that's that's a little bit crazy. Um, what I found, so I mean, 
uh, so by by the end of the 24 days, so it took me 24 days to walk in total. Um, I'd sort of found actually the walking was comparatively far, far easier. You know, the walking was just the easy bit. It was yeah. actually the mental energy um, of even if you're super tired from the walk, you still got to get up, give like a half hour, one hour, two hour talk to some kids and really mm. be engaging. Um, because at the end of the day, we, we've got to inspire the next generation. Um, otherwise, we're going to get nowhere. Yeah, brilliant. I'm gonna I'm gonna jump onto that bit in a minute. So I'm gonna go into the walk bits first, and then I'm gonna talk, get, pick your brains about conservation and things like that. So, um, so obviously, like, did you do the talking to the to the, the groups of kids um, you spoke to sort of before you started walking each day, or did you sort of walk, turn up at a school tired and kind of you know ready to throw down your bag, and then do the talking at that point? It it really um, it honestly just depended. Uh, so many times I was blown away yeah. by sort of how um, in the right place, right, right time I was for a lot yeah. of a lot of days on this walk. And I mean, a couple of times I'd be offered, um, people would hear about what I'm doing. And a couple of times I've, mm. I was offered a bed, like a bed for the night or to camp in their garden, which was amazing. And they'd often have connections through their kids or neighbours to the local primary school or scout group. And it would honestly, it would just depend what point in the day I got to that town. So a couple of times I did talks at midday or at the end of the day, or say say in Leyston, which is um is right by Sizewell in Suffolk. Yes. Um so it's just a couple miles inland. What I did was get to Leyston in the afternoon, do a two hour session with the scouts, stay in the scout group overnight, yeah. and then talk at the primary school in the morning oh, and wow. then go off and walk yeah. twenty miles. Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm yeah. guessing that part must have been fairly exhausting just doing the talking but I'm also assuming that talking to yeah. the kids is also very energizing at the same time it, exactly it's a really interesting um what's the word I guess it's a really interesting balance you could say because mm. it's kind of a push and pull because at the one hand you walk out say like I walked out of the primary school talk um in the morning going oh my gosh you know I've got to walk another <laughs> 20 miles and you're kind of drained but of at the same time yes. As you're walking out of school, the kids are waving to you, saying good luck on your journey. Thank you so much. And the teacher actually did a show of hands. She said, you know, put your hands up if you've been inspired by this. And all the kids put up their hands. And I oh, nearly amazing. started crying in front of this class of kids. Um, so, yeah, it just gives you such a boost as well. And I bet you had that the similar kind of experience to that with every school or scout group you went to. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's just, I mean, the energy you get from young kids is incredible. Yeah. So. So that, so that was obviously a really big part of why you're doing this to hopefully inspire, you know, the next generation to be, you know, interested in conservation on, you know, a local level, but also on, you know, broader scale. So do, what, what kind of things did you talk about with the kids? How, how, how did you kind of engage them in that way when you turned up at the schools and scout groups and what kind of, what kind of age groups as well were you trying to talk to? So I talked anything from, I think the youngest was about age six or seven. And then the mm. oldest was sort of 15 or 16, kind of the older end of the scout groups. Okay. Um, and I remember on the first few nights sort of lying awake in my tent going, oh my goodness, have I bitten off more than I can chew? I've got no public speaking experience. I'm just going to rock up to these places. Do I need to plan yeah. these talks? What am I to do? Um, but no, I decided in the end, the best, the best bet was actually just to kind of make it up on the spot, have a few ideas, bullet points in my mind, as it were, um, of stuff I wanted to talk about. But I'd, I'd sort of tailor each talk to the area and just do the sort of the few days um, walking I'd pre previously done to the talk. Yep. 
and okay. pick out sort of bits of local history or local ecology and geography that would, I guess, really bring it home uh, to the kids. Because a lot of them, like I gave some talks in Harwich and the kids never really get out of Harwich, um, a lot of them. As, and it's like a really small town. So actually just saying, you know, 10 miles up the coast, you guys have got Northern Ireland, which is where this huge battle um, involving the Vikings, the Anglo-Saxons happens. And the kids are like, oh, wow, we've heard the Vikings. And I say, yeah, this is right on your home turf. This is your stomping ground. You know, you, your guy's home's awesome. So, yeah, it's all about inspiring them what, what's around them. Amazing. I mean, that's really impressive, um, if you don't mind me saying. I mean, the you know, walking, you. what it is. Um, and, I, and I found that when reading your blog, because it was full of um, kind of little anecdotes and interesting bits and pieces you picked up along the way. But to sort of walk and being able to capture that, information and that knowledge and be so interested that you kind of hold it and then you're allowed you're then in a position to talk to local kids about their locality when you're not from there in the first place is is really difficult to do um so that's amazing and I'm I'm sure that uh, I'm sure that went down really well I mean I've got two two boys myself and one of them is five and I know how hard it is to keep him interested in in anything so you know to to keep uh to, to keep a load of you know school kids interested and get them engaged and excited is a really impressive thing to do but you've got tons of energy so i'm not surprised you managed to do it so um i did i did see um the bit you wrote about the disparity on the the lincolnshire coastline um yeah. sorry not the lincolnshire the essex coastline apologies um yeah. and i am aware there's some very poor and deprived communities along the coastline which i think can easily get forgotten because it's such a sort of lump of land on you know the 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 right of britain which can can you kind of forget about don't you especially those coastal towns which don't have quite the the grandeur of the the welsh coastline in the southwest kind of coast um did you did you find uh that sort of difficult to comprehend when walking through those coastlines and did you um did, did you kind of how how yeah i guess my question is how how was it walking through those areas and kind of how how did you feel when you kind of saw you know, one area which was full of big, expensive houses, and then females down the road. Those kind of the poorest communities in in the UK. Um, so on, honestly, it was bonkers. Uh, I don't want to use the word eye opening because that sounds really it's a really overused phrase, but that is probably the phrase you know um, most suitable here. I so I remember I took the ferry from Mersey Island to Brightlingsea, uh, which yeah. is down sort of South Essex coastway. And people in Brightlingsea said, you know, they everyone would spot me because no one in Essex walks around with a big rucksack. So everyone would stop me and ask what I was doing. Yeah. And they okay. were saying, oh, so you're going to walk up the coast north? And I went, oh, yeah. They said, OK, well, you're going to just be aware you're going to walk through Jaywick, which is the Soweto Jaywick, That's the town I was alluding to. Yeah. Which is known yeah, to be exactly. one of the poorest communities in the UK. Yeah. I, yeah. I think it is the most deprived looking at the stats, which I've read later. But um, and I went, oh, come on, don't be ridiculous. We can't call a place in the UK Soweto. This is, you know, you, that's not on. You can't do that. Um, and it was, yeah, it, w- it was a shock. The, the, the level of uh, deprivation uh the of the town that I was walking through was was a real shock I didn't realize we had that in the UK but everyone was super super friendly uh, absolutely no difference to anywhere along the coast everyone was interested in what I was doing I just stopped and chatted to loads of people um didn't feel in any danger at all and it was just a bit mind-blowing because 10 miles up the coast you got Frinton which is just yeah sort of upper class haven yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah yeah that yeah, yeah. is crazy I mean you know, um, and, and, and did you stop in Jaywick and similar towns to do your talks there as well? 
I didn't get a chance to talk in Jaywick, but uh, there are a couple um, a couple f- further along. Um, so Harwich, I did a talk, and further up in Suffolk, Lowestoft is also a fairly um, relatively deprived town for UK standards. Um, but I do have plans to actually go back to Jaywick and give some talks because I met a lot of people who said, oh, that'd be amazing when COVID's kind of died down a bit because this was still before the 17th of May. Of course. So, yeah, that's what I really want to go back and do. Oh, amazing. That sounds really good because I'm assuming in in the sort of the difference between sort of the, I don't, I don't like to do black and white and, you know, left and right and things, but the rich and the poor towns, I'm going to use those words. Um, mm. The difference between those, did you notice a difference in how the the kids or the young people in those different environments reacted to the way you speak because I'm assuming perhaps wrongly that in a town where it's more affluent when you're doing these talks about conservation there might be just a little bit more understanding just down to the 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 availability of good education in those towns um and yet in those other towns was it the the fact that the kid there was more of a sort of awe with those children who'd not really experienced anybody talk about conservation and history and made exciting for them did you notice that at all Oh, definitely. And, you know, as I said, the the kids in, say, Harwich were amazed that just down the road they had all this history and whatnot. Um, it was not only the sort of the amazement and engagement of the kids with the conservation and marine science side of things, but also the actual walk. Um, I, I guess because if you're in a slightly more affluent area, you're going to have traveled more, you're going to have a much more sense of distance. And exactly. yeah, yeah. maybe you've got some hike- hikers in your family or adventurers, whatever. But when I sort of said to these kids uh, in the, you know, less affluent places, I'm walking 300 miles. Uh, so I begin every I begin every single talk saying, has anyone ever done a really long walk and they got really fed up and they'd all go, oh, yeah, yeah you know, two yeah. miles down the road or whatever, age eight, that's a long way. And then I'd come in with, okay, so I'm walking 300 miles and you'd see their jaws absolutely drop. And then as <laughs> How I can somebody walk to, 300 miles? Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And then as I'd sort of carry on and talk more, especially to the girls and say, you know, girls is, you know, not just the guys who can go and like do these big long treks on their own. You'd see the cogs start to turn it to turn in That's their heads because yeah. no one had ever they they hadn't really come into contact with anyone doing that before. Hmm. So, yeah, I can imagine that's the case. And I think that's was was that um, had you gone out with the um, with the idea in mind of also inspiring in particular the girls? Was that something you really wanted to do when you do that? Because I think that's really important and actually really interesting that you could just see that the interest from the girls in, and you 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 might have been the spark for somebody to do something themselves in you know 10-15 years time um, is that something you set out to do anyway um it definitely it definitely came into it yeah I mean growing up uh watching sort of Leveson Wood uh Simon Reeve Ben Fogle on TV and I go these guys are awesome the journeys they're making you know whatnot is in- so inspiring but there's a real lack of girls and women doing it um and I think what's really interesting is it's much it's it's not um it's, I'm not saying at all it's sort of men telling women you can't do it it's not that at all there's mm. just mm. a there's a lack of role models but yeah. also what I found on my what was really interesting is women uh women empathize with people very psychologically very differently to men and that's not me saying one's better than the other that's just it's a fact that mm. Ways of communication between, well, from women and from men are different. And 
I think being a solo woman traveling Mm -hmm. and walking, um, I was able to get people to open up a lot more and tell me their personal stories. Um, I mean, yeah, sure, it's going to be like a character thing. Some people are more open naturally. Of course. But I think you'd get, I got a very different perspective on a walk than, say, a guy my own age doing it. Sure. Okay. Because of that ability to empathize with people and to make them feel warm. Yeah, 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 um, exactly. I mean, it's the same reason that um, there are lots of, uh, now there are lots of emerging all-female anti-poaching units in Southern Africa. And okay. a lot of them are unarmed that. and they're having, they're, yeah, they're having huge success. You've got the black members mm. in South Africa, for, for example, unarmed, oh, okay. all-female anti-poaching unit. And it's just their ability to de-escalate situations verbally that's mm. giving them such success. Without the use of arms at all. They just yeah, engage. With... No guns, no guns. They that just is de-escalate amazing. situations. Oh, that's um, and I, so And it's the same sort of principle of being able to sort of, I guess, mm. de-escalate and communicate well or, or in a different way. Um, but it's, yeah, that's amazing. I mean, I, I'm very interested, and I, I don't. I'm not very good at talking about it. Um, I, I tend to butcher these kind of conversations, to be honest. But I find it really, really interesting watching um, the emergence of female adventure and solo female travel, mm. and women who are just getting out there and doing it. When sort of maybe I don't know, as you say, a lot of the TV in the past has very been has traditionally been male led adventure you know ben fogel you know bear grills whoever yeah. you know um it, and, and even you know big newspaper spreads of people climbing big peaks has very much been about men doing it so to see women doing adventure is really really interesting so yeah it's really interesting how you, you kind of mentioned that there was a, a spark there with women and i really hope that kind of you're obviously going to be adding to that emergence and growth of, of that interest and i hope by the time you know my boys are older that they will see as many females doing things and on the front pages of of magazines than there are men because it's getting there but it's still a bit mm. it's still a way off at the moment so that's really oh, interesting definitely it's a sort of it's a new exciting kind of field i guess it is really exciting so yeah i'm, I'm super interested in that i mean um in the, the facebook group which uh, you introduced yourself to me through um that has a, a high percentage of women in the sort of below uh, 40 I think below 50 actually age bracket who have joined it now which is amazing oh, awesome. yeah so and then men are sort of out ranking women by a little bit in the uh, above that in the age brackets above that but I think it's I can't see the exact breakdown because I haven't plugged in the numbers yet but I think it's almost a 50 50 split last I checked was a 49 percent women in the group mm. and then uh yeah and and I think it might have actually just climbed above that so women might be outranking men in terms of numbers in that group which is amazing oh, awesome. which, yeah yeah it's really awesome. cool i'm really I mean, pleased to see that yeah 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 that's that's what we need i mean there's a lot of talk about sort of um quotas and having a mm. minimum amount of sort of women in high ranking positions and whatnot um mm. which is fine but what we need is equality of opportunity not equality yes. of outcome and maybe yeah. it just takes someone just to literally you know flick that switch and plant an idea in a young woman's head to say yeah you can actually do it then we'll get that mm. quality of outcome. Brilliant. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And said far better than I was I was able to say it. So thank you. <laughs> um, um, so I've had a I, month I was, of practicing, so. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's really, really good. I'm really glad I asked you that question now. Um, so 
on the blog, I noticed that you wrote, I think it was on your first or your second night. Um, now, I don't know if I'm saying this right. There was something called the uh, Othona Community, a, a yeah. collection of volunteers who help in a chapel um, and a permaculture garden. Um, and they welcome visitors and pilgrims. Um, can you tell me a bit about that and other similar experiences you had of people welcoming you in along the route? Sure. So, so... On my first night, I reached the Chapel of St. Peter on the Wall, which is a amazing place. It's the end of a, I think it's, I'm going to get this wrong. I think it's 40 mile, it's a 40 mile long pilgrimage route um, called the St. Peter's Way. And it goes right across Essex. And the, the chapel is on the coast, right by the sea near Bradwell. And okay. it's the final point in this journey. Um, and so over centuries and centuries, I think it was built in sort of 500 AD. So it's really okay. super old. Yeah. Um, it's been the place of, you know, the final destination for many, you know, the, the final destination of a sacred journey for many people. But okay. it was just sort of right at the beginning of mine. So right away, I was like, mm. wow, that's quite a profound place yeah. to start. So I camped overnight right by that chapel. Mm. Beautiful sunrise in the morning over the East Coast. Yeah coming right over the sea and then I got up in the morning and went to find some water okay and I stumbled across this of this sort of community um called the Othona community and it's just a collection of volunteers basically and I said oh I'm really sorry you know I know you're closed because because of COVID and whatnot but do you mind if I come and just top up my bottles for water and they said Mm. yeah yeah of course got chatting and they said you know you look like look like you're walking a long way I go oh yeah I know day two out of you know how many I'm heading up to Hunstanton they go what offer me sort of loads of tea and biscuits um give me some ideas for other communities and people and places to do talks further along the coast brilliant and yeah I mean that was the the sort of that was the start of the snowball effect of me being Hmm. in the right place right time um um, just random strangers being super super kind um I mean I it was it was mind-blowing really I was walking further up in Suffolk um along uh along a beach Bordsey beach which is right by Shingle Street so okay it's a bit 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 south of Albrook if that helps yeah. sort of pinpoint it okay. um and it was super rainy super windy I was not having the best days walking should we okay. say yeah. Uh, and then I saw this camper van and mm. I s- walked to it and went, hey, guys, I'm really sorry. Do you mind if I just eat my lunch behind it? Because it's so windy. There's no other shelter. Huh. Yeah. Because um, all, all on the East Coast, there's no trees. There's nothing. It's it's bonkers. Just, yeah. Um, yeah. Just like sand, shingle just, or mud flats, wow. basically. Yeah. And they said, yeah, 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 sure. You know, come, come sit, uh, whatever. Um, and I was like, oh, thank you so much. And then they started chatting to me, finding out what I was doing. And it was a couple, mm. lovely couple. And they were so kind. They were super engaged with my walk and go, oh, that's amazing. Then they offered to make me a cup of tea. And then this turned into, mm. oh, well, do, do you want a bed for the night? Because we actually live just in Snape, sort of, oh, well, wow. they said 10 miles down the road. And then yes. I said, oh, that'd be absolutely amazing. So they actually took my pack um, mm. and I walked the the wet rest of the way to Snape um, yeah. without a pack and then got a bed for a night. And this was just completely spur of the moment. Oh, that's incredible. lovely. Yeah. Wow. And did you, um, so what, what other experiences uh, did you have? Because I think you said you, um, on the, one of the last couple of nights, you uh, had kind of knocked on somebody's door for water and you got, you were able to camp in their back garden or their field or something as well. Was that quite a common occurrence yeah. to not have to wild camp because you found places to stay? So what was the spit of having to kind of camp out for the night somewhere, you know, 
uh, that you found at random um, to having to you know finding somewhere where they offered you a bed or a, a field or a back garden or something? So I tried not to do too much while camping because I know it's um, technically technically not yep. yeah, not in the rulebook. Yeah, I uh, didn't. <laughs> Everyone I tried on this podcast not to... <laughs> so far wild camps. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I get the yeah. police knocking on my door. No, yeah, wild camping um, is illegal, but um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I yeah. I did try not to advocate that too much, but um, yeah, no, I, yeah, I did. So I did three days of wild camping, but actually over twenty four days, I paid for accommodation once. I paid a okay. tenner to a campsite in Norfolk. The rest of the time, okay. either I was in people's gardens or yeah. when the weather got really rough, people saw what I was doing and said, oh, we've got a spare bed, you know, oh, come and come and use it. Or actually one one really cool, um, really cool night I spent was in someone's shed. And they said, oh, we've got, hmm. a, we've got a shed in our back garden you can okay. use. And I was like, Which oh, could mean anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I was, was a a shed, shed. Yes. Yeah, less, less wobbly than a tent. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I was yeah. like, penultimate night, amazing. I don't have to put up my tent. Yeah. I can just crash in this tent, uh, yeah. in the shed, sorry. Yeah. And it turned out it was, they had this huge field. It was okay. a shed and it looked over the Norfolk Broad, mm. not, not not the Norfolk Broad, sorry, Blakeney Point um, okay. in North Norfolk. And I just had this amazing vista. So you, it sounds to me like you, you really got to experience the, the generosity of people along the path. Was that sort of one of the highlights of it for you then? Oh, absolutely. I mean, everyone said to me, oh, this you know, must have really sort of reinstated your faith in humanity. And mm. I'd answer, well, I mean, I never really needed reinstating, but um, yeah. it definitely expanded or bolstered it, I guess. Um, and I think particularly after two years on and off of lockdown, everyone was mm. so keen to finally see a new, a new fresh face um, and chat and just tell them their experiences of the past year um yeah so it was amazing amazing and in terms of the uh obviously it's not a, it's not a hilly route at all I'm assuming you probably encountered almost no incline or decline in the whole of it um <laughs> uh, there was, sure was one beast and bump yeah beast and bump, beast and bump. Was, uh, something okay, like, right. I don't know 400 meters not even that oh okay so it's yeah. very small okay. in uh yeah. in norfolk Which, so i took a little selfie on top of that <laughs> uh, brilliant. <laughs> so yeah so um obviously that that in itself walking on the flat is quite is tiring and um you know ha- not having that difference in foot movement of going uphill and downhill and mm. resting on the downhills and also not having that the, the, the views you get from being at the top of a hill are you know it's a shame not to have those but you know walking on the coastline like the Lincolnshire, not Lincolnshire, sorry, I keep on saying Lincolnshire because that's my local-ish coastline. But um, <laughs> no walking on the Essex coastline is, you know, is, is a different experience and and something that most people generally don't tend to do. You know, the coast paths along the Essex coastline are quiet because, you know, southwest coast path mm. and, you know, uh, the Pembrokeshire coast path, et cetera, tend to attract most of the, the foot traffic. Um, did you find it more difficult and or, or and did you find the camping experiences along there to be quite exposing? Because you said you didn't have a lot of trees or cover. So did you usually when you're wild camping, you can kind of pitch down somewhere in between some, te- you know, some trees or something like that. But in this case, I'm assuming you're kind of trying to do it in sand dunes and, you know, out of the way places or behind a, a chapel in this case. Did you find that to be the case and quite difficult to manage or was it OK? Definitely, definitely. Um, I mean, the few experiences I'd had of wild camping on the southwest coast path, there are loads mm. more trees. Um, it's a lot easier to go unnoticed. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously being a solo uh, young woman, 
does hmm. i mean whilst i would promote that as much as possible it obviously does yeah. come with its own safety and worries and whatnot yeah. um so yeah a couple times i well camped on sand dunes hmm. um and i think yeah a couple times in norfolk and the, so you get the east the eastern winds which comes in and because you're on sand dunes there's no protection so it's pretty pretty damn chilly um but yeah i camped a couple times and sort of realized i was next to a couple groups doing some illicit activities shall we say and i did not oh, okay. feel entirely i was, well, I was pretty yeah. damn scared to be honest yeah, <laughs> i'm not okay. play that down yeah. um but yeah my final night was on brancaster beach and i camped just behind mm. the sand dunes and that was just yeah. incredible was it okay and you and you said that your final day as well was walking along sort of the beach where you had your a lot of childhood memories how how was that to finish you know walking along somewhere that felt really familiar was it uh, was it planned to finish well i'm assuming it was planned to finish there but you know your family came to meet you how was how was that last feeling that last moment of walking for you oh that was um yeah that was i don't know how to describe it really um so as I was kind of approaching Hunstanton, I, I thought I had like another 10 miles to go. And then suddenly over the horizon, boop, I see the stripy cliffs of Hunstanton. I go, oh my gosh, you know, the fabled, the fabled place. Um, people have been telling me, oh, you, you'll like the stripy cliffs of Hunstanton. I go, okay, brilliant. And then, yeah, so I was coming in, listening to, um, what was I listening to? It was some, uh, oh yeah, um, Magnum Mysterium by Oligo, which is a piece of classical choral music, if anyone knows that. And it's, yeah it's pretty pretty uplifting and then I got to the beach and I sat down and I went oh amazing I was sort of feeling really elated um as I was walking up to it and then I sat down mm. and I just felt completely normal and everyone around me was just happy families going about <laughs> that normal holidays yeah. and yeah. I'd taken off my rucksack and it was weird because I'd taken off my rucksack sat down was barefoot just looking like mm. I was a normal person on the beach and I sort of lost yeah. like the yeah, yeah I'm going on a long hike so I was kind of like oh what do I do myself now um was was that was that a, a, a kind of bad feeling was that something that made you feel kind of disappointed that you'd finished or was it that that feeling you get at the end of something where you you're expecting another feeling but you just don't get it you know I think I mean? it was that it definitely wasn't bad yeah. I think it was mm. a mixture of um just so many emotions over the past 24 days that I was sort of wow okay it's over just take a moment to sort of recollect everything um and then when I did walk up into town and finally find my family that was yeah that yeah. was pretty emotional but uh wow. <laughs> yeah it was good to have I sort of chilled on the beach for a couple of hours on my own yeah which was nice to sort of take everything in and sure yeah, yeah. oh that, that's I think that's really important actually that time mm. to not walk into uh you know it's, it's obviously it's amazing to walk into you know the open arms of your family celebrating that you've just done this but I guess that time just to sit on the beach and kind of soak in what you've done which is a, a very substantial walk to do that you know anyway yeah um, I can imagine that was really important for you so that's that's really that's really good to know so now you're sort of uh back on kind of you know uh, into reality how, how does that feel um kind of how do you feel about the, the walk now now you sort of had time to soak it in and think about it so so when I when I was doing it um all the time I was sort of thinking ah it's not that long because my friends had done the southwest coast path and that's 630 miles and I was only doing half of that so all the time in my mind I was like ah you know could go on a bit um actually the last day was it was almost like my 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 body knew I was finishing that was when my feet really packed in and went yeah nah. yeah there's a psychological um, thing there isn't there where you sort oh, of you kind of your brain starts telling your body like you can relax soon you can relax soon and then you know it kind of everything starts aching more than it did a few days ago I think on the last yeah, few days yeah. yeah it's 
it's insane. Up until that point, I'd be absolutely fine. Um, but then, yeah, at the same time, I sat down, my feet were flipping sore. Um, but I was also sad's a bit of a boring adjective but yeah sad, sad it was over so soon it sounds like a cliche but yeah I definitely want to do more more of this sort of stuff um so yeah watch this space I guess <laughs> amazing um so in terms of like um, I, I keep on asking everybody about kit questions because uh, mm. I think it's something that the uh the Facebook group who are going to see a lot of this uh, these podcasts will be interested in mm. um sort of ha- what did you carry that you worked out very quickly that you didn't need but you still had to carry for the for the trip for the I, that I didn't didn't need um yeah. were you quite good at packing just what you needed Food, food's generally the thing that I take yeah. way too much of. Um, yeah. <laughs> anyone who knows me knows I'm always like snacking and eating because I'm like always right. moving. So I'm burning through so much energy. Um, yeah. I mean, because what I hadn't factored in was actually the East Coast. When you get past Essex, it's pretty urbanised. Um, there are quite a lot of towns. Well, not urbanised is the wrong, wrong word, but there are a lot, a lot of towns. So it's easy to stop up and refuel. Okay. Um, so I didn't need to carry nearly as much food as I did. It's not like I was going to the Antarctic or something. Okay, and because it look it also um, you, what, kind of what, how much do you know how much weight you carried for it as well, and kind of how much daily mileage you managed to do. Um, and this yeah. isn't this isn't like to compare anything. Is it just just general interests? Um, no, no, of course, um, of course. So I think so. I I aim to do about fifteen miles a day, but this okay. went up to anything up to twenty five. Oh wow! Um, okay. Yeah, it sort of depended on where I was doing talks and where I'd need it to end up during the day. Um, and kit kit carrying, uh, I think my pack was about fifteen kilos. Okay, so a pretty is... pretty kind of standard weight for a yeah. for a pack. Yeah, but the mileage yeah. is really good, especially. And how many days did you take to? Uh, sorry, you did mention it earlier. on. how many days did you walk it in as well? Twenty four days, and I took days, a couple wow. of days where they were fairly rest orientated days. Yeah. yeah of course which i think is, which is important especially of what you're doing you know yeah definitely. You're, you're you're obviously trying to you know complete the walk but also trying to take it in you know deliver definitely. talks to school definitely so um, yeah what, what worked very... really well was on a couple of the well the rest days i put in inverted commons um i sort of stay in a town and give a couple talks in that town over the course of the day so i wasn't really ah, walking okay. but i was talking Sure. So you, yeah. So you're probably still tired, but you know your feet were getting a break for a day. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Uh, and like the physical recharge yeah. on like a long expedition like that is so important. So yeah. Uh, okay. And I see you finished it in flip flops as well. Did you? Did you do any um, other than sort of the last uh, day? Did you do the whole day I in flip flops? Or oh, I didn't do the whole day, but um, oh. the last few miles in Honstans, and I did. I did. Um, yeah. No, there was a sort of a section around Harwich because. Um, I the, yeah the first few days were sort of the well the first couple of weeks were so wet the yeah my heels were just absolutely gnawed through by the sort of wet socks and everyone, oh, I'm sure no. everyone listening knows knows about that sort of stuff but um yeah so there was a couple of day or two where I just decided to go in flip flops <laughs> yeah oh okay fair enough um so uh, conservation and ecology I got got a few questions so when I was reading through your blog I I learned tons of stuff I didn't know now I think I'm like most people where I have an interest in it, but I don't know where to start mm. with conservation and ecology. Now, 
This is going to sound awful because one I, I did a joint honours degree and part of that was countryside management uh, and the other part was outdoor recreation. Quite frankly, oh, awesome. it, was, uh, a use, it was a useless degree because I paid attention <laughs> to the thing that didn't really kind of lead to much, which was outdoor recreation, which was an excuse to go climbing for, for my university course. Um, anyway, so I, I should know more about conservation than I do. I know a little bit, but I generally don't know where to start with it. So for somebody who's interested in conservation or perhaps wants to go out and enjoy a long distance walk um, or any kind of walking or outdoor experience and feel that they're not just looking around at trees and birds but sort of able to identify a few key things or to identify a few birds based on the bird song or anything like that really kind of where have you got any easy kind of uh, easy wins in terms of easy stuff to identify Mm. Um, or ways you can get started or good apps to use or books to buy or anything like that that might help people to kind of get started in conservation sorry in, in understanding the, the world around them and nature definitely um so in terms of sort of easy spots for wildlife um yeah. if we're talking about sort of big birds of prey um there's I mean, the most common one um, across England that's had a massive resurgence is the red kite. And you see these okay. guys soaring across the skies and they've got big, big fork tails, kind of ready, rusty coloured wings. And they're, they're pretty huge. They're pretty awesome birds to be able to see. And you sort of hear them, um, I guess, mewing would be, or, yeah, mewing, I guess yeah. I'd describe their call as. And you hear it and it's like a really distinct sound coming down from high up. Um and another couple of uh, birds of prey that are really easily easily spotted but easily confused are buzzards and kestrels. So the ways to tell them apart, buzzards circle uh, round okay. and round and ke kestrels yep. hover. If you see something hovering, 99% it's going to be a kestrel. Okay, wow. And then, sorry, go. No, no, wow, I'm interested because I'm, I'm guilty of being that person and my other half gets frustrated at me where I'll see a bird, which is obviously a bird of prey, and I'll go, hey, look, it's a bird of prey really impressed with myself that I've spotted a bird of prey but often I have no idea what bird of prey it is you know yeah I, I mean my little boy asked me daddy what is it and I was like it's a bird of prey and he said if he's, he's smart enough now to know that there's more you know bird of prey encompasses various birds but, and yeah stuck on that so that's really interesting yeah so yeah there, I mean there are so many what was, we got really exciting is um what's really exciting is that they get they, they've got plans to reintroduce uh, I think it's white-tailed fish eagles to North Norfolk um, so yeah, England is full of birds of prey, but what actually is really useful in identifying birds of prey, or I guess any birds, because um, myself, I'm pretty short-sighted, so I'm definitely not the best bird watcher out there. Um, half the time, <laughs> I was walking past these bird reserves, and um, I'd go, I'd go to the people, you know, the the, the twitchers with their binoculars, you know, sort of studying these things. Mm. I go, oh, amazing, you know, what can you see? And they'd say, they'd name the bird and point and I go I just have to pretend and be you know pretend I could see this thing in the sky <laughs> okay. when it's maybe just like a yeah. speck and go oh cool well good luck photographing it whatever <laughs> walk on yeah um so I actually learn bird calls as a better way I identify birds and throughout uh the past year especially actually every day I've been listening to something called uh channel four's tweet of the day and that's just okay. five minutes they get different presenters talking about a specific bird species and obviously because it's on the radio, you can find it online. Um, it gives the bird call, and if you just have a tiny little sound bite once a day or once every other day, it's you. You build up like a library in your head of bird calls. So that's a super good way of recognizing it. 
and then you can look really cool when you're you know out walking with people if you go oh you of know course. i can i know that, one. that yeah. over there and you might not even be yeah. able to see it so yeah you look like a proper oh, proper nature guy brilliant, <laughs> brilliant. And, is, and is your interest mainly with animals or was it is it with um you know uh trees flowers you know flora fauna etc I'd like to be able to say that I'm a completely non-biased ecologist and like everything, but um, yeah, no, definitely animals. <laughs> definitely animals, <laughs> yeah. yeah cool. Animals definitely pay my heart. <laughs> that's fine. Um, and you mentioned as well on the blog, now I, really, I found this interesting, um, about curlews. So mm. um, obviously they are um, wading birds with mm-hmm. the, the long curly beaks, which uh, I think yeah. I'll obviously conjure up an image of what they are for people. Um, and you mentioned them um, as being a form of low-cost monitoring and um, as bioindicators that are easy to spot and count. Can you explain that to, to me and everyone listening? Because I, I sort of tried yeah, to understand that, but I kind of, yeah, um, I, I didn't really understand what it was about. Yeah, no, of course. So, I mean, the whole nature of ecology, um, and I guess like, well, to define ecology, it's the interaction of organisms uh, with their living and non-living environment. Um, and the whole nature of it is, you know, by its definition, studying interactions of things, I guess. Um, so if you take curlews or wading birds, um, studying their ecology means you're going to know uh, their migration patterns at different times of years, what they're feeding on, what things eat them. Um, and so if you can see, um, a, you know, a flock of curlews. I think there is another collective noun for that. But anyway, um, okay. if you see a flock in a field and they're digging around and eating, you're going to know or have at least have a rough ballpark what species are going to be and organisms are in the mud um, by definition. And by th- and from that, you can then infer stuff about the soil chemistry, the pH, um, sort oh, of wow. how healthy the, the mud flats are. Yeah. Wow, that's really interesting. And um, are there any, could you sort of work out as well what quantity of food they might be eating and therefore that would determine how much of other subspecies there are that they're eating based yeah, on that? Or so does it go I, further I than guess, that? Yeah, I guess, um, I guess, well, I mean, curlews are, they're, they're pretty much on the brink of extinction. Okay, So didn't realise that. Inter- yeah. Oh, I think their numbers have plummeted sort of 60% in the last uh, 25 years or something in England. Wow. It's, and what was the, what's, what's, what's the reason for them being on the verge of extinction? I'm assuming hunting, game, or um, there other reasons? Yeah, so partly, but it's a lot of uh, habitat loss. So with expanding agri- agriculture um, and also rising sea levels, we're losing a lot of the um, mudflats and breeding grounds. Um, for the curlews um sorry not breeding grounds the summer summer grounds the curlews but also inland we've got a huge increase in the number of foxes and these guys like to prey on the curlew eggs so yeah i mean if you've got like a little nest of curlew eggs on the ground that's completely defenseless fox comes along it's free dinner so it's, they're uh, just easy pickings basically okay oh that that's that's really interesting, and obviously the the rising sea levels are caused by by us. Um, yeah, <laughs> uh, no no doubt about that. the 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 rising fox levels what's is, is that caused by us and population in areas um, that's allowing foxes to to breed better? Or 
Um, yeah, I mean, I guess, uh, I, I guess part of it is, um, with urbanization, there's a huge amount more of urban foxes, um, on the prowl and these guys will spread out into the country. Um, but also with expanding agriculture, we're taking a lot of the uplands, um, the mm. upland areas and turning them into fields, um, and a lot of deforestation, um, so yeah, basically the and the curlews breed in winter up in inland, and so if the, all those are fields basically, um, and depending on how they're managed, the curlews may or may not be able to breed there. But okay. what's actually super interesting is uh, wading birds can actually help agriculture because when they're digging around looking for their dinners, mm. recycling up all the nu- nutrients, this actually oh, okay. kind of uh, con- yeah. contributes to the sort of sto- soil stability. Oh, it's really interesting. And talking of agriculture as well, you mm. mentioned something about the Brent geese. Um, mm. And there was a bit of a um, an interesting story about the conflicts that they have with local farmers. Can you go into that? Yeah. So, so okay, a little, little anecdote with the Brent geese, actually. I was in Tolsbury Marshes. Uh, I think I'd, 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 I was doing something crazy, like a 40, 40 kilometre day or 25 miles. And I'd got sort of like two thirds of the way through and I was just sort of slightly starting to lose it as i'm sure everyone yep. has yeah. experienced on a long distance walk and i was sort of sat on this old army pillbox looking out over the marshes and all these these geese were sat there and i was like oh what what am i doing and i was like I, I started in my head going a bit nuts and sort of reasoning oh well you know you guys have come over from siberia they've migrated thousands of miles um they've you know lot the they the the change in body weight they go through just to prepare for this migration is absolutely crazy. They build up 40% of their body weight beforehand and then okay. digest their own internal organs um, wow. during the migration as fuel. Yeah. And I thought, gee whiz, if these guys can, you know, just do this just, just to be able to sort of get something to eat in, in winter, then I should be able to, I should be able to walk a few <laughs> yeah. more miles today. Anyway, um, so further along, I started chatting to some farmers or farmers' wives, actually. Farmers' daughters, anyway, um, and what they were telling me about the Brent geese is that initially there was a lot of conflict with them. Where they arrived from Siberia, be starving, understandably, from their migration, yeah. and start eating all the the crops in the fields, which the farmers had just planted. So they're pretty new crops. But over the years, they have worked out. The farmers have worked out that if you plant the crops slightly earlier in the year. They grow earlier, and by the time the geese arrive, they're they're tougher, older plants, which the geese aren't going to eat. So okay. it's sort of these methods of oh, oh we don't actually need yeah. to shoot the geese; we can just yes. you know work a bit of it, we, their cycle. yeah exactly yeah. or well. yeah it, find ways that works both for the wildlife and for the humans. Brilliant. That's a really interesting story, and I'm I'm guessing there's lots of um, experiences you you've kind of seen and also learnt where there's been obviously a conflict between humans and nature and the mm. biodiversity and i'm assuming there's obviously often a, a really good and quite simple solution such as planting crops earlier so they're hard to you know more hardy than the geese like um mm. is that something you come across you, you come across quite frequently that there are these kind of ex- opportunities just to think slightly to the left and therefore you provide a solution where nature and people can live in harmony 
Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, that was probably like the main the main one that stood out on the walk. Mm. But mm, yeah, all over the world there are these solutions. I mean, in Africa yeah. they they're discovering that if you um if you put beehives in trees, elephants mm. don't like the sound of bees, so we'll keep away from the crops. Oh okay. Wow. So instead of shooting elephants yeah. or whatever, you can yeah. get some bees. Yeah. And yeah, so bees. stuff like that. And you, yeah, and that's that's amazing. That's really interesting. That's really interesting. Um, so, um, yeah, I won't, I won't ask you um, any more um, ecology questions. I found that really helpful personally, <laughs> especially the, the birds of prey question. I can now point at, um, you know, birds of prey and know there's a difference between a, a few, which is good. Yeah. Um, so I noticed, I think it was today, you mentioned on your Facebook page and your blog that you're doing something called the City Wave Project. Mm. Can you tell me more about this? This is obviously the next the next step, I'm assuming, inspired by what you've done um so yeah could you tell us about the city wave project absolutely so i've decided um you know obviously i want to carry on from this walk mm. i don't want to sort of i i don't want to sit back and go oh yeah that was nice nice yeah. little stroll we'll uh, finish yeah. there um what i noticed nice, nice 300 was... mile stroll <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly my little stroll i think i put on my instagram yeah. bio actually gone for a stroll when i was out yeah um anyway um yeah so what i noticed was kids uh mostly in you know less affluent areas as we talked about even if it's just slightly inland mm. they'll they, they, a lot of them will basically never go to the sea they'll never go okay. to the coast i gave yeah. talks at layston which is two miles inland and yeah you know kids never go to the coast so yeah this yeah. um yeah it's 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 mind, mind-blowing really mm. um just pu- purely i guess like the family don't have the the chance or the time or the means mm. to go so what I'm going to be doing is I'm and hopefully I'm going to team up with a few other marine biologists as well. Yeah. Um, we're going to be uh, we're going to go around inland. Sorry, start again. Um, right. <laughs> that we're going to hopefully I'll be teaming up with a couple of marine biologists who've you know done other walks or whatnot. And mm. the idea is I'm going to go to different towns and cities within East Anglia um more inland and just chat about my walk and marine science and just engage them in our coasts and our oceans and actually you know getting outdoors and exploring a bit because Mm. often it's just yeah as I said earlier you just need someone to flip that switch and plant the idea and then the kids will do the rest amazing so it doesn't doesn't stop at the end of the 300 miles you've just done you're really wanting to continue talking about this and spreading the message so Oh, it's definitely. Obviously... And I think I think half the half the battle at the moment is getting uh, bringing oceans to the minds of everyone on the planet, not just the yeah. people who live on the coast. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's easy to forget that we live in a country surrounded by sea. Yeah, you know? yeah, um, oh, definitely. You know, I, I I live in Nottinghamshire. You know, my nearest coastline is Lincolnshire. Um, you know, but that's two two hours away. Um, which can feel like a long way. So, you know, there's been plenty of kids, you know, where I live, um, which I, I would assume will grow up, you know, until they're teenagers, adults, never actually seen the sea, which is mm. sad. So I think that's, you know, the idea that there's, you know, children live in town which are, towns which are two miles away from the sea. And when the sea contributes to so much wellness and mental health and clarity of mind as well, it's a shame that that happens. So I think that sounds really worthwhile, especially if you're you know, combining forces of others who have your your level of knowledge and interest in in this. That that's really exciting. Um, so, yeah. f- final question: um, After this this long distance walk, have you got any other long distance walks planned? Ooh, or considering, um, yeah, I, well, not plans. I've got yeah. uh, you know ideas in my head. Hmm. I, I'm 
I'm getting the calling of the Welsh coast path. I was sort of. I saw that earlier. You posted about it. Yeah. yeah. But <laughs> um, I think because I go to uni in, in Cornwall, mm. um, I think yeah. walking the southwest, I've had the privilege of seeing a lot of this coastline already. Sure. So I think going and seeing yeah. the Welsh coast would be amazing. Really? But we'll would see. you would, we'll see would you plan to do that in a similar way, or just walking for the sake of walking for your own enjoyment? Oh, definitely. I yeah, I definitely want to give like talks and whatnot on on, on route. Brilliant. I do it, so. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, well, today. thank it's you so really, much for having me. No, it's been an absolute pleasure. I, uh, we, we did try, well, I tried to arrange it with you prior to uh, when you were actually walking. But um, to be honest, I, I really struggled to work out the uh, logistics of doing a telephone podcast. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. It was completely lost on me how to record it because I wanted to record it. Um, you know, I understand the quality from your side might have been on the telephone, which was fine. But I needed my voice to be okay. And I thought if I record it on my phone, it's going to sound awful. So yeah, thought, well, wait, wait yeah. till you're back. You'll have stories and, <laughs> you know, 300 miles of interest behind you. So I'm, I'm really glad I waited. So it's been really nice. Definitely. To have you. Oh, thank you. Well, I, I can, if you want, I can, I don't know how this would work. I can send you some videos I took while walking. I don't know if you can like yeah. strip the sound or something. Uh, you know what? That'd be amazing if you could, because I will happily add them in as some little sure. extras okay. and some music. So yeah, that'd be incredible if you could send those over, because I can definitely strip the sound off them. So I'll, I'll okay, yeah, please, brilliant. Please do that. Um, awesome. And when I edit, I'll yeah, I'll, I'll clip, add those clips in the middle if you could. That'd be amazing. Fantastic. Awesome. All right, Katie. So thank you so much for joining me today. No, that was it's awesome. Thank lovely. you so much. Really nice to speak to you. Have a have a great evening. All right. And you. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you. Bye. 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 So there we go. What did you think to that interview with Katie? Do let me know as I would love to hear. And if you can, check out Katie's Facebook page at facebook.com slash ecologist got lost. I really enjoyed this episode myself and learned loads about a fairly overlooked part of the English coastline. And I particularly enjoyed learning about wildlife and honestly I needed to hear some of those stories on human generosity and the curiosity towards Katie and the walk she was doing. It was really refreshing to hear some of those stories. So that is it for this week. Thank you so much for listening to episode three of the Distance Hiker podcast with me, your host Matthew, of course. And uh, as a a final thing, uh, the show is now on Apple Podcasts. I had a bit of a battle getting it on there. Um, I'd forgotten my login details because I don't have an iPhone anymore. Um, But we got there eventually. Um, So you can subscribe now on Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoy the show, give us a review. Uh, I don't know how to do that, but I'm sure there's a button on Apple that says review. So uh, I'd love a review. Uh, Or if not, just send me an email. Let me know if you're enjoying the show because I'd really love to hear from you. Anyway, thank you so much for listening and enjoy the rest of your day, evening, night, whatever you're doing. I hope it's going well for you and I will see you next week. No, talk to you next week. Over and out.